Hi, this is Caden, and this is my daddy's podcast called Lasting Learning. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Lasting Learning Podcast. I'm super excited about my conversation today because I'm talking with a new friend. You know, sometimes I get the opportunity to, to reach out to people that I've known for years, and I just want to dive in and really explore their thoughts and get to know them at a different level. Today, I'm going to get to know somebody right along with you. So this is going to be super, super exciting. You know, lately, I've had some conversations that some would say are controversial. I poke the bear a little bit and just try to, to get the conversation started. And today, we're going to have some of those conversations with my new friend. When we were talking before I hit record, I said, what kind of taboo topics do we have? And I was basically said, told, there's not a whole lot that we can't talk about. So so be ready. She's going to be in the hot seat quite a bit. We're going to see where this conversation goes. And you're going to have the opportunity to meet Miriam Platinsky right along with me. So Miriam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And that intro made me a little nervous, but let's see what happens. <laughs> That's the goal. If I can get you sweating before you even talk, then it's going to be a good convo. Mission accomplished. So, so Miriam, some people here might not know you, um, and I want you to just take a few seconds, introduce yourself, tell them who you are, what you do, where you do it, why you do it, all the things. Okay, so um, as as you already shared, I'm Miriam Plotinsky. I am many things in the world of education. I am what's called an instructional specialist, which means I work in a large school district to essentially support schools in different ways. My area of specialty is secondary English language arts and literacy. So I mainly work with a lot of grades six to twelve folks. So that's that's a that's a fun zone for me, and that's that's my day job by night. I teach adults um, about being teachers. I'm doing that tomorrow night, so I'm super excited to be doing that, get my class ready. I also, I'm an author and education writer, so I have one book out, one book coming out, uh, more in the works, and a bunch of articles. So I pretty much tell people what I think and then see what they say back. Sometimes it's, it's nice and lovely, and sometimes it's not so nice. First of all, I can't imagine anybody being not so nice to you because you're amazing. You're 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 so sweet, so kind. Got that glowing smile about you. I can't imagine you saying anything that's going to offend or upset anybody. But let's see if we can do that tonight. How does that sound? Let's let's just you want me to offend or upset somebody. Let, or let's do that. Yeah. I, let Let's just see how many of my subscribers com completely cancel me as a result of our conversation today. That's that's your aim. That's your goal. No, please don't do that. I'm totally kidding. That terrifies me. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I'm not We're not trying doing that. to be polarizing. I'm just trying to make the world a better place, Dave. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So let's start. I, well, I'll I'll ask you some softball questions that that might be a little bit difficult, but it's based off of something you just said. Um, you said by day you are an instructional specialist. There are some a lot of educators that listen to this podcast. A lot of teachers, a lot of administrators, a lot of parents. That might be hearing that thinking, oh, I'm going to start using that term instead of teacher or instead of paraprofessional or instead of parent, instructional specialist. That is like the most amazing title I've ever heard for somebody in education. So unpack that force. Maybe do this by, by telling us what it is that you don't do as well as what you do, because classroom teachers, teacher assistants, parents that like that title might need to know what some of those boundaries and barriers are. 
Yeah, let me clear that up because depending on where you work and what you do, that title could apply to so many different jobs. So in my case, I was a classroom-based teacher for nearly 20 years. This is year 22 in my district for me. So I've been doing this for a long time. So I spent a lot of time with kids who I still love best in classrooms before I was hired to essentially be an in-house consultant. So I no longer am stationed at one school. I go from school to school helping teachers, administrators, uh, department heads, instructional leaders, and kids with whatever their needs might be. So whenever I go from one school to the next, whatever I'm doing is different. Um, and you know, the theory is that I'm an expert, but I will tell you, because I, I really truly believe this, that there's no such thing as one expert in, in any room. So when I go into a place, and I'm actually writing an article right now about this, I, I go from the opposite place of, of whatever the opposite of arrogance is, because there's just so much I don't know there's just a lot I don't know. So I try to think about, um, you know, what do the people in here need? They know their school best. They know what they need and how can I help them? So it's really a partnership approach or a two-way street kind of approach. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of this, this notion of bold humility, of having the confidence to say, here's what I know, but also being humble enough to say, I'm ignorant on a whole lot, especially your individual circumstances, your community, your classroom, your needs. So you, you said that you're supposedly this expert, right? Which which is an interesting paradigm when you know that the way to get to, to truly support people is by showing genuine curiosity and humility, but yet others want you to have the answers to all of the things. I, I've said before that oftentimes leaders, when they present themselves as having all of the answers, they get fewer questions than somebody that says, I don't have a clue what's happening. So I'm curious, in, in your situation, in your head, how do you balance that? How do you balance the need to, to truly have answers to questions that are being thrown at you, but yet also not coming across as arrogant, coming across as somebody with the answer, somebody that is genuinely curious on how to uh, the, the needs of that individual stakeholder, that room, that class, that school? A lot of it is about not going too fast for me. So when we go in, we want to fix something. We go in with like a fix it attitude and that's not productive. It's more, okay, let me ask a lot of questions first and figure out what's happening. Then let me plan something together. If there's, I'm coming with a certain set of experiences. And so I'm going to use those experiences to help whoever I'm with. And then they're coming. So it's not like I walk away saying, we're not going to do anything. We're going to make a plan of action, but that plan of action is changeable up to whatever time we need. It's, it, we can course correct if it's not working. And then also I need to hear from the people who are trying to reach whether or not this is working. So for example, I'm gonna give a training session tomorrow. At the end of it, I'm gonna ask some questions about what worked, what didn't, what questions do you have and use that to plan the next one. And then come back to the same people and say, this is what you told me. Here's what we learned. Here's what we're gonna do differently. Here's what we can't do differently and why that is. So it's not like we never make decisions because I think no decision is a decision. We've seen a lot of that from leaders and experts over the past three years let's just wait it out and see what happens and we know that if you do that then things still go a certain way so you have to make a plan but but don't go in there with an agenda um there's this book that i talk about all the time it's actually right behind me it's called noise i don't know if you've read it it's by joe mccormick and he talks about how when we listen to people we have like our own thoughts spinning in the background and we're so busy listening to our own head that we miss the like the, the key of what the other person's saying. So I'm always on a journey to really get the point before I start to develop any kind of solution. 
sorry, I didn't hear a word you were saying. I was listening to the <laughs> thoughts in my own head. No, I'm, I'm getting, but so as you were talking though, I was making some connections to, to lots of things. So you're spot on with that. When you listen to somebody else, typically your brain starts to, to absorb it through its own lens. So I was making a few connections. Number one, you, you, you mentioned that you are sort of like a consultant in your own system, which is a fascinating idea. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about your system, but that the idea is, is fascinating to me. A good friend of mine, her name is Lavana Roth. She's a, a consultant uh, in Florida, goes nationwide. She, she has been known to say that when you're in the PD consulting, PD coaching world, you are not an expert within a 50 mile radius of your home that typically you have to leave for people to actually listen to you and buy into you because otherwise you're just you. Um, and so people don't necessarily see that that level of expertise. So that's an interesting phenomenon that I want to discuss a little bit in a, in a few minutes. But I also want to make this connection that I was, I was hearing. I'm a father of four kids. And I, I hate to make the comparison between what you do with teachers and what I do with my kids because I don't want any teachers to think I'm saying that they're like my kids. I would not be saying that because... God bless you. You are not like that. However, however, I do think that there are some comparisons there. I think that there are some similarities. You talk about the need to, to listen to their needs, to, to go in and ask for self-assessment on things and how things are going. At our dinner table, just got done eating dinner before we started recording. My wife likes to ask my kids for their highs and lows for the day. What's the best thing that happened and what's the hardest thing that you had to overcome throughout the day? But hearing their perspective is oftentimes different than my perspective. The things that they consider to be hard or difficult, I look at and say, that shouldn't be that hard. Or the things that they love, I look at and say, oh, I didn't realize you really like that. So my question to you, all of that, sometimes when you are self-assessing or asking educators, the people that you're helping foster, helping grow, when you ask them what's working, what's not working, how do you balance their own perceived biases so that, you know, you're there to serve their needs, but sometimes what they think they need isn't what they really need. How do you make sure that they're focused on the right work for the right reasons and that they're assessing their progress in the right ways? I know that's a, a big, loaded, complex question. And I got there by thinking about my relationship with my seven, nine, and 11 year olds and stuff like that. But I, I'm wondering, you know, how do you support others with things that you know they need that they're, if they're not there yet? So typically, and I believe this about people in general, people who want the help are going to be open to it. People who don't, that's a much harder ask. So generally speaking, when I am helping someone, it's because I have been asked to. I'm not going to put myself out there and be like, hey, you need to try this if, if you haven't indicated that, that desire, because it, it really is hard. Having said that, sometimes the most difficult people we work with are difficult because they want to change. And they are actively questioning everything in front of them. So it's a process. So for me, it's about how do you draw someone into, into a process that they do want to go through, but that they are cognitively wondering is, is going to work out. And so for me, that's that's why I don't believe in being prescriptive. I don't think it works. Um, that's part of the whole philosophy behind my book is you might have a goal that you're trying to achieve, but unless the people are with you in some form, unless you're finding a way to make it work for them, it's going to be a struggle. That doesn't mean that if I have, so suppose, suppose the goal is we're going to work more on um, inductive learning. We want students to ask more questions. We want them to engage in more higher order thinking skills. And so I'm going to go in there and I'm going to come up with a plan. It's like, okay, well, what's, what's going to work with the way you already teach? So in other words, 
what can we work on that doesn't require you to change a ton of things? Let's think of one thing we can do, just one thing to focus on. So instead of I'm going to give you this passage to read and then I'm going to tell you what to look for and you're going to underline those things. How about if I give you this thing to read and you ask a bunch of questions and they can't be yes or no answers. And then I'm gonna collect your questions and I'm gonna figure out what the patterns might be and, and how you're, so essentially you work with models that people already have. You don't mm. ask them to reinvent a ton of stuff because who wants to do that? So I, I, I felt the need to apologize a few minutes ago saying I'm making this connection between my kids and teachers. But I think in a way you're doing the same thing with the way that you coach or the way that you support teachers. It's the same way that you hope that they support kids in their classroom, right? It's this self-autonomous mindset where you know your strengths, you know your needs better than I do. So I'll be the facilitator for your, lear your learning, but I'm not going to be that nag. I'm not going to be that helicopter, if you will, that person sitting over your shoulder. Because again, my wife and I have had this conversation quite a bit recently that we finally started to feel some relief when we're letting natural consequences take place, where we don't feel the need to micromanage every single moment and give directions for every little thing. If the room's not clean and they're sitting in a, in a pile of dirty clothes, bummer. Sucks to be you. Similarly, you clean your room and you feel fresh and amazing in there. Awesome. That's the reward. We'll give you the, the expectation and you do with it as you will. Is that kind of what you're saying with how you support teachers is with, and they have a need, you kind of build around what they prescribe as their need, or somebody else will say this is their need, or specifically, this is their strength. This is what they do mm -hmm. already really well. Let's build off of that. Yeah, because who wants to feel like they're bad at something? I mean, that's the thing. I don't think we get anywhere with anybody, any human being. So we're talking about is humanity right now. And that's why we keep making comparisons from kids to adults to whoever. It's because we all have a need to be skillful at something and we all have passion to tap into. And, and kids have that in common with adults. One thing I say all the time, you know, when I talk about giving people choices in classrooms, no matter what age the learner is, what are their natural tendencies? You know, I know that I work a certain way. I know that I do certain tasks at a certain time of day better than others. We never give kids that choice. And I think sometimes, even in certain professions, we don't give adults that choice either. And so if you march into a room full of teachers and you say, right now, we're going to learn about how to do student-centered learning, and you're going to try this first, and you know nothing about them and how they teach and what their classroom looks like and what their strengths already are, it drives me absolutely bananas. Also, you're bringing in a lot of outside people, and I count myself as one of that, those sometimes, to train a bunch of people when you have people in your building who can do that work really well. Like, why am I coming in as the only expert on student-centered learning when you've got like 17,000 teachers in this building who are doing an amazing job with that already, and their colleagues are more likely to listen to them than they are to me? So, so let me push back a little bit now. This is me trying to stir the pot. So in, in the real world, I've got a general practitioner. I've got a doctor that I go to who does a, a general wellness check. And they ask me, how are you doing? And I self-prescribe. I say, I'm doing great. I've got no issues. They run some baseline tests. And then ultimately, if I say I'm feeling fine, I'm fine. But if I start to say I'm struggling, they will oftentimes refer me to a specialist. Sometimes I do have to leave to go find somebody else that can, that can do the work in a more specialized fashion. In a way, I feel like that's kind of what you are. You're the specialist that people are, are tapped into. Are you, are you saying, though, you know, that's been said before that every teacher is a leader. We're not going to go there and talk about whether or not that's true or not. Do you believe that every building has all of the, the strengths and all of the skills that are already needed? Somewhere? Yes, probably. However, the problem <laughs> that was a very good political answer. Yes. Carry on, though. <laughs> 
I don't think that generally speaking, there's the time, the, the capacity to find it. And I am a specialist because I know where to look and how to look. And I also know I have a lot of resources. So part of, part of being a specialist in anything is that you're resourceful. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the buck stops with you. It means that you know how to find it if you don't know, or you know how to tap into the capacity of people who have been ignored in the past. So you essentially can find all sorts of connections and start, you can put the puzzle together, like there are all the pieces everywhere and you're assembling them. I think of it a little bit like that. I, I love that, you know, it, but it's, it's an interesting mindset for some people to, to take on this idea that people have the best of intentions. People can grow. People want to do better. Other people though, will say that, especially when we're, when we're talking about kids, that kids aren't necessarily mature enough to know what's right from wrong. They're not mature enough to know what works for them. That's the reason we have to script everything for them. That's the reason we have to stand over their little shoulders and tell them what to think, when to think it, where to think it. It's the reason we have to put the right books on the shelves for the kids to read because they might choose the wrong books to read. Talk to me about that. Are, are kids truly mature enough to, to make these decisions or do we need to hold their little hands until we send them out into the world um, to, to make all the right decisions for themselves? The answer to your question is yes. So broad spectrum, yes, there are things. So I read an article a few weeks ago and it made me really angry. It was about a book I've never read. And in it, the author makes the argument. He's a professor emeritus. He's like 94 years old and I don't remember the name of the book, but he's like a Harvard or Yale guy. And he's saying that all kids are blank slates, empty vessels. And the reason that education is failing in America is that we've been doing all this student-centered learning stuff, right? And we just need to tell them what to think because they come with nothing. And I thought about that and I was like, wait a minute, what child walks into a classroom with nothing? Like nothing, you know? And I obviously, I don't think that's true. I find it objectionable in a number of fronts. I think we can always activate some kind of prior knowledge or some kind of expertise, even our youngest learners. Now, with student-centered learning and those kinds of practices, sometimes you have to hold on a little tighter. Sometimes you have to hold on with both hands before you can let go with one. Sometimes there's certain areas that kids need more guidance on. You can't just throw them out there and be like, do stuff. I mean, when I was, when I was in nursery school, I went to a Montessori school and uh, I remember this. Uh, my job was to put like labels on all the states in the United States. And I, my brain, I wasn't gonna do that. I just wasn't wired to do that at the age of like three or whatever. So I remember distinctly arbitrarily putting different state names onto different places and not looking it up because I wasn't ready for that. So when we have like a one size fits all for any kid, it's, it's not gonna work. Having said that, yes, kids can take, can take responsibility and part of the idea of learning more about them. So I have a whole section in my book, I've got a four stage process to, to essentially achieving this kind of what I call hover, hover free classroom. And one of them is validating who kids are as learners, not who they are as people, that's important too, but also taking the time to treasure their ideas and to find value in everything. So even when they put forward ideas that are wrong, especially when they make mistakes, you're uncovering that as a pathway to learn. I just gave you a really long answer, but I thought your question was complex. No, it, it, that, I think it was a phenomenal answer. It's, but let, let, me, let me dig a little bit deeper, right? Because there are people out there that are hearing this and they're saying, okay, good. In a, a pie in the sky world, where every kid comes with the quote unquote right foundation and everybody comes to you with the, the skills and the mindset and the aptitudes to want to learn, that might work. But there are also people out there that think things through and they'll, they'll say things like there are best practices. There are these universal principles that 
will work in every classroom everywhere. We've got the research and the scholarship to prove it. But you're saying that it's not a one size fits all for any classroom, let alone every kid. So anybody who makes the argument you just described, that's 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 when you say as a teacher, because I'm hoping that we're talking about teachers and not lay people, because when lay people make these arguments, I'm just kind of like, okay, yeah, sure. Um, but when the teacher says, I've got it, I figured it out, I can do the same thing each time with all the kids every year. I'm a little worried about that. I mean, I've been, again, I've, I've been in education for 22 years, but even like the last three, it's blown up in our faces. It's, it's so different. I mean, not just from year to year, sometimes from month to month, what's available, what we can learn from it. And to say a one size fits all approach, because to me that that communicates, and maybe I'm misinterpreting, but to me that communicates a lack of desire to learn more about what's really happening. Like, do you want to ask all the kids in your classroom what they're thinking? Because if you're to poll every single one of them and ask them about their needs and they were to actually feel safe enough to respond honestly, it might not be what you think it is. Your intuition might be off. And I know that as teachers, we use intuition a lot. And I also know that we're wrong a lot. And in the past, I'm, I'm going to clap for this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask kids what they thought in the earlier part of my career because I was afraid. Yeah, I... I I, I'm the same way. I don't know if it was necessarily fear, just flat out ignorance for me. I was a person I used to, I, I still say that we tend to to fall for the amens when we're standing behind our pulpit, right? We're sitting in our classroom when we see those one or two kids that are nodding along and are basically saying, preach it. And you think everybody's tracking with what you're saying or what you're thinking. They're all picking it up the same way. We tend to follow that false narrative because we are looking for those people that think the same way that we do. You know, it, yeah. I also want to rewind to something we were talking about early on about students being impressionable and being innocent blank slates. I want to just make sure our listeners understand. Listeners, I'm going to say something to you that might offend you, but you are extremely impressionable as well. Um, if that weren't the case, I would not be doing this podcast right now. I wouldn't have written books. Miriam wouldn't have written a book it, because we know that we buy into ideas of people that have microphones, that have books, that have a little clicker and can run through a PowerPoint presentation. We tend to believe that whatever that quote unquote expert says is the gospel if it aligns with some of our preconceived thoughts and notions. So Mary, I'm curious right now, you work with a lot of educators that have a lot of skill sets. You were given your job because you were seen as an expert. Do you see yourself as more of an expert now because you've stolen things from other people that you were supposedly there to help? Or do you feel like, wow, man, I, I really did have all of the answers and it's just reaffirmed every single day? Not the second thing you just said. <laughs> well, oh good. That's good. I wanted to, if you would have gone there, I would have had a whole slew of other questions for you. So that's good. Yeah. So one thing I say a lot about stealing is that in education, that's, that's what we do. I mean, and I'm not... I know that we say stealing and sometimes we're being like a little bit flip about it. Um, we're there to learn from each other. In fact, one would argue that the most frequent professional developer in our field is the teacher down the hall, right? So I have an idea for something. I'm not quite sure what to do. I go down the hall with my friend who's teaching something similar and say, hey, have you ever? Mm. Then we learn from each other. We write a lesson or maybe I take a lesson idea, but then I make it my own. And just like I used to say this to my, to my writing students. If I gave, and we would do it as an experiment, we come up with a story idea. We all have the exact same story idea. We lay out the characters, the plot, the conflict, everything. And then 
30 people in the room write the story without talking to each other, every single story is different. And that's the way teaching is too. Because I can I can take your ideas and I can run with them, but when I execute them, it's gonna be a completely different animal just because style changes, perspective changes, translation changes, everything. So we, we're inspired by one another, but then we make meaning of it ourselves and students deserve the same opportunity, which is to make meaning of learning in a way that makes sense to them. So I'm sitting on that for a second because I'm trying to think about how to ask this follow-up question in a way that's not gonna offend everybody that lives in my state. And I don't think I can because I offend everybody that lives in my state often. So I live in a state where there are people, politicians, that believe it is the responsibility of educators to script out everything, to tell our kids what to think, when to think, where to think it, and how to think it. They also tend to believe that one size does fit all. They also tend to believe that there is a prescribed way to teach. And what you just described, some would say, and that's the issue, that you just allow teachers to do anything they want to in their classroom, that they're not held to high enough standards of of expectations. That's why we need to have these standardized assessments to make sure that everybody is learning the same things in the same way. You know, I, obviously there are some people that push back hard against that, but there are also quite a few people in the mainstream that hear that, prescribe to it, and do a lot of teacher bashing as a result of teacher mm -hmm. autonomy. How do we balance that? How do we balance this need to, to give teachers the autonomy to meet the needs of their kids? while also recognizing that there are so many in society that just want us to fall in line and do things the easy way. So the second thing you just said, fall in line and do things the easy way. Anyone who thinks there's an easy way doesn't understand what we do for a living. There is no easy way to educate. Educate means discomfort. It means being exposed to ideas that you not not just that you agree with, but that you disagree with because otherwise you can't engage in critical thinking at all. Um, I was coming up with an analogy in my head and you can tell me if it's totally off base when you were saying all this. I went to a doctor about a month ago for a fairly routine procedure. I won't be detailed about it. It didn't work. It was painful, awful, and I left in worse shape than I came in with. The doctor's solution was, I'm sorry, there's no other solution. I have to do surgery. I'm gonna have to knock you out or you're gonna be in more pain. I went for a second opinion to doctor number two. Doctor number two did the procedure almost painlessly in five minutes without any issue. And when we were discussing this, it had been an issue of, of the actual procedure itself. It came down to capacity. The first doctor couldn't do it, the second doctor could. It was the same procedure. It looked fairly straightforward on the surface. It was prescribed. They're both doctors. They both have training. They're both highly qualified. They're both really, really well rated. They do the same thing, but one of them could, one of them couldn't. I think about teaching, which is far more subjective and nuanced than the procedure I am describing. We could try to standardize curriculum in a country that is incredibly heterogeneous. But one thing I learned when I studied education policy a bazillion years ago, but this is still true, is that if you're trying to have is it homogeneous? I can never say these words, but if you're trying to look, if you're trying to look at a population and do the same thing for a population that's relatively the same. So if you're in say Singapore, it's a lot easier to enact that kind of standardization and for you to do it as you would say the easy way. 
Our country doesn't look like that. The mere fact that I am in one kind of state that believes one thing and you are in another that believes something totally different is just the tip of that iceberg. And we haven't even gotten into differences among the people who populate this country. So nothing easy about standardization. Now, should there be standards of instruction? Yes, there are. There are grade level standards aligned marks that kids have to reach at certain times in certain ways in order to achieve the outcomes that we've set out for them. That should never change regardless of my instructional approach. They've got to learn what they have to learn. But to argue that, okay, I'm in English, that some books will get them there faster than others, and it's because of the content of the book as opposed to the way it's written, as opposed to the lexile level, as opposed to the complexity of the text, that's a whole other thing. And that's that's turning an issue on its head in the way that is most unpleasant, in my opinion. Oh, that was such a good answer. So you geeked out a little bit there and you talked about some of your studies in educational policy. So let me geek out a little bit as well. And I'll take this to a whole nother level. You know, I, I think one of the issues is that we try to measure learning in a standardized way. We're, we're chasing the wrong thing, if you will. And I spend a lot of my time, a lot of my energy, a lot of my money comes from preaching standards-based grading, which is iron, irony in and of itself. But it doesn't mean standardized instruction, which are completely different paradigms. So let me take people back to 1983, close to 40 years ago. Some people listening to this weren't even alive. So this is going to be like ancient history for you. In 1983, there was a study that was commissioned that uh, went out to study education in America, and they produced a paper that is now popularized, and it's known as A Nation at Risk. That paper was put out into the New York Times, it was put into USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, a bunch of the big papers that basically said America is lagging behind its peers and quote-unquote competitors worldwide in reading and mathematics. America was ranking 25th, 26th on these measures, falling behind countries such as Sweden and Finland and Singapore and China and Malaysia, a lot of countries. And America, super competitive in the 1980s, had to be the best at everything. Rocky was beating up everybody in the 80s. Top Maverick was out there blowing up all the jets from all the people in the 80s. We had to be number one. So we said we will not fall behind on any measure whatsoever, regardless of if the measure is accurate and it really assesses what we care about we're gonna drop everything to be number one. So we started chasing our rankings and a nation at risk, hence the PISA study. The PISA test that we give to our, our high schoolers every few years to see where we rank against other countries. And that became the impetus behind our standardized testing. What people fail to recognize is that for 75 continuous years, 75 years in a row, America has led the world in copyrights and in innovations, trademarks, America continues to be a country filled with creatives and inventors, people that are out there revolutionizing the world. But we don't talk about that. Instead, we talk about where we fall on a ranking that we didn't care about when we were becoming the strongest, greatest nation on the history of the planet. It's been the last 40 years when we started chasing something that we didn't care about before, other than trying to be number one in something that doesn't matter. That's when things fell off the rails, people. So I throw that out there. And say, yeah, we can be standardized and we can be number one at something that's stupid, or we can continue to be number one at something that's truly going to be revolutionary and change the world. And it's by doing the stuff that Miriam is pre preaching to us right now that's going to get us there. So Miriam, preach to us real quick. Preach to those amen people right now that are like, yeah, I'm, I'm living this now. Preach to the amens and just give us a couple nuggets. You talk about having these spaces that aren't that are kind of hoverproof, that get rid of the helicopter syndrome. 
something I've been guilty of as a parent, I was guilty of as, a, as an educator, not allowing students to be self-autonomous and um, to be curious. How do we do this? How do we actually do this in classrooms and in schools? It's really important to approach it with balance. We can't be any one thing all the time. And, you know, I used to be a hovering teacher. I had a journey to becoming a hover-free teacher, but it's not like I'm hover-free every single day. And like you, I'm a hovering parent. Like I was hovering behind my son on his laptop because I was suspicious the other day. I can't stop doing that. So, you know, we have moments, but my question that I put to people when I start talking about this is, you know, what little steps can you take that make sense for your classroom? So for example, I wrote a book that has more tools in it than prose because I wanted to just give people stuff they could literally let steal, if we're gonna use your word, and, and adapt for their own purposes and use. But then, let's, let's be fair, let's be fair. They're buying your book, so they're not stealing anything. <laughs> I hope they do. I hope they do. I would be so excited if there were like some underground way to get it that were less savory, but I'm not that big yet. <laughs> so just in terms of, you know, what what's what something to do? Well, give kids choices once or twice a week. I'm not saying every day you take away what's comfortable, but suppose you have two or three big things that have to happen that week. Can't there be one or two days when they can decide what they do first, second, or third? I mean, can we do that? Can we just take the stuff that we were already going to do and let them figure out what happens in what order? Just a teeny tiny step to saying to them, I recognize that your work style might be different than mine. And also, can we also think about when a kid asks us for an alternative, if we're saying no for a reason. So kids would come to me and say, I know we're doing this project, but can I do this instead? And I used to have this knee jerk, no response. No, this is the way we're doing it. I'm assigning it. Why would... But then I started to think, okay, is the way that I'm doing this assignment the way it is for a reason? And if the answer is yes, then the answer is you know, no, you can't change it. Or is the kid who's really motivated to try this other thing? Do they have a point and can I help them? So if I have a sign that my class will write, you know, a scary story at Halloween, so hard to scare people, big challenge, woo, fun. I think it's fun. But a kid comes to me and says, um, I'm working on a book. It's for National Writing Month in November, and I really want to write my book. Can I just give you a chapter on the due date instead of the scary story you challenged me with? Well, if I think about it, what's my goal? Is my goal to teach a kid how to scare somebody, or is it for them to write something? And then why can't I say yes? So little tiny things so we can have more balance, giving them more choices a couple of days a week, saying yes if we're able to. Just nothing seismic, you know? That's that's what I am proposing. I'm not saying change your curriculum because that's not a choice people have. I'm not saying sit down at your desk and don't do anything because that's irresponsible and that's not teaching. I'm not saying all the time, be dynamic station rotation teacher. That can be a lot of work. However, doesn't mean that you have to do the same thing the same way every day. I find that tiring after a while. Even if it's reliable, it's not engaging for me mentally anyway. I love it. Take it's baby steps, right? And I think I think that is hard for educators because we want to do right. Educators always want to do the thing that they know will work for their kids. So that's one one reason why we're so hesitant to change because we know that what what we did in the past was good. You know, John Hattie tells us from his research, ninety five percent of the decisions teachers make are good decisions. But just because it's good doesn't mean it's the best decision. So we want to make sure that we reconcile that. But so we oftentimes hold on to what we know is good. And we let go what could be even greater. So you're encouraging us to take some baby steps, to just yes. try something small. But I'm going to yes. warn you, people, these small steps, they are gateway drugs. 
you're not going to feel comfortable just with one or two choices a week. You're not going to feel comfortable just giving kids one or two assessment options. It will be the gateway to you doing some amazing things really, really soon. But taking those small steps are huge steps on your journey. Love it. Love it. So well, you this mentioned- is where I do the big, the big commercial plug, because when you're ready to take the big step, then you read the whole book and you go through each stage and then you're ready. Yeah. So let, let's talk about your book real quick, right? So th- you're, you said that it has more tools in it than it does pros. So this yeah. is an opportunity by pros. We don't mean professionals. There's a lot of pros, P-R-O-S-E here that we're trying to avoid with just the, the narrative description and, and theory. This is an, a lot of practical application. Teachers can take these tools and plop them into their classroom based off of their needs, their students, their desires, and what works for them. All right, so I, I love the, the concept. Where did you get the, the courage to say, I'm going to take these ideas. I'm going to put them in print for the world to take, absorb, and judge. It's funny. I've never thought of it as courageous. I've more thought of it as, you know, like when you have something and you're so excited to put it out there, like you're just so excited because it worked for you and you just want to share that. that. That's kind of the spirit in which I wrote this book. And also I was having a conversation with some teaching friends about education books. And they were saying, you know, love the theories in them, but I just never feel like I can do much with them. Like I read the books and then I don't know what to do next. And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we had education books that literally said, try this and change it, you know, however you want, but this is, it's, it's, it's a guide as opposed to a, you know, because theory exists up here in the cerebral space and we love talking about ideas. I found that especially over the last three years, the luxury of talking about ideas went down a little bit as we were dealing with a lot of emergent survival type situations. And so sometimes you just have to cut to the chase a little bit. Um, so in terms of courage, I think for me, it was more just an eagerness. I taught a class like this that kind of kicked everything off. It was a it was a creative writing class. And I would try to share it with people, but my sharing wasn't systematic enough. If that makes sense, I would say, oh, I tried this, or I tried that. But then when they would do it the class themselves, it would still wind up being too prescribed, too teacher-directed. So I thought, I'm going to have to write this down. If anything, it was a selfish check. I'm going to do this for me. So I know that when I'm talking about something, it's not just coming out of my own imagination. This actually, it, it did work. It does work on real children in real time. So maybe that maybe that was the part of the reason as opposed to courage. I'm not very courageous. Well, I would I would argue that is courageous. You know, some people have equated their book to being like their baby. And it, it takes a leap of faith for you to take your baby and drop it off with somebody else. Number one, because you're not sure how other people are going to treat your baby. But also you're, you're oftentimes wondered, you're wondering, how is my baby going to respond to them? Right. And I think it's a leap of faith. And what that's what you've done with a lot of your thoughts and a lot of your ideas is you're giving them to other people to then go take and do something with. And you're just hopeful that your words, your ideas resonate with them and that they can take them and nurture them and and use them for the greater good. And I, I think it is a courageous leap. And I, I think it's 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 powerful for anybody to be able to, to take that step and change the world through classrooms. So kudos to you for doing that. And I'm I'm hoping that people will will grab a copy of your book. They'll go to the, the link that's in the show notes here and they'll snag some some copies, buy one for you, buy one for your teaching partners. You guys each try different tools and tell each other what works. Do all the things. Just put this thing on the, the New York Times bestseller list because Miriam deserves it and she's awesome. But Miriam, there might be a few people that are like, why not? My world has changed just listening to this. And some people tell me that when they're listening to the podcast, they actually feel like they're at a conference or they're engaged in some sort of PD. So I'm going to ask you to play that part real quick. I want you to imagine that you've just inv- been invited to, to give a keynote 
for the world. People said, we want a game changer. We want somebody that's going to revolutionize things that are done in the in the in schools and classrooms. We want somebody that's going to just knock everybody's socks off. So the last 40, 45 minutes, however long we've been talking here, you've been giving your speech. You've been knocking it out of the park. The spotlight has been on you. But people are now looking at you and they're like, okay, it's time to go to my next session. I know she's about to wrap up here. You've got that microphone in your hand and you're just about to drop it and walk off the stage. And you want the 7 billion people on planet Earth to remember something about you, your words, your message. What is your mic drop moment if you have one? I always go back to the words. I'm going to age myself here. Steve Winwood, if we're familiar with Steve Winwood, he was uh, very popular in the 80s. He did a lot of music and <laughs> he did this thing called music. Um, he wrote a song and one of the lyrics, it's, it's called Higher Love. And the refrain is, bring me a higher love. And I have always found that to be kind of my mantra because I don't care how old I get. I don't care how things go. I can always keep pushing it to a place that's not bound by rules, that's not bound by other people's expectations, what I'm supposed to be doing, who I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be whatever I want to be. If that means, you know, I wear white after Labor Day, I think that's a stupid rule, by the way. I don't really get it, okay? Where do, do what you're going to do. And you have to be bold. So maybe there is some courage. You have to be bold for yourself to tell yourself, this is not good enough, sure. Good enough is good enough. We're not trying to be perfect, but bring me a higher love. Keep pushing it. Like this can get better. This can keep getting better as long as I have breath in my body, which brings me back to Dylan Thomas, another poet, rage against the dying of the light. We're going to rage. So rage. Wow. If only Steve Winwood would have got a hold of some rage. Imagine rage, a raging Steve Winwood. All the saxophone solos in the background would have just been going nuts. That would have been that would have been Ooh, epic. Yeah, I love his voice. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, Steve Winwood, Journey, Huey Lewis. Nothing takes me back like that. So that was an, that was, a, that was an amazing uh, 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 mic drop moment right there because you got me in the eighties. You got me right in the feel. So so well done. Well done. So Miriam, I'm, last thing I just want to throw out there real quick is, is people are are starting to, to wrap up. Maybe they're pulling into work. They're falling asleep at night, whatever the case may be. There are people that want to connect with you. They want to continue to learn and follow your journey. They want to be able to engage, engage with you some way, somehow. How can people find you and look you up and have a conversation with you? So I will have a conversation with anybody who wants to engage in awesome Awesome talks about education. So my website, um, it's my first and last name, miriampotinsky.com. There's a contact form. I promise you, I read those emails and I respond to any personal ones that come in. So please do that. Um, I'm not uh, on all the social media. The one that I'm on that I engage with on a regular basis is Twitter at MirplowMCPS. So that's M-I-R-P-L-O-M-C-P-S. So that's a great way to find me too. Um, those two places, You'll hear back from me real soon. That's awesome. And, and again, people, I know most of us, we just skip over the show notes in these things, but all that stuff is in the show notes. So I encourage you to go take a look and then look her up and continue this conversation. Miriam, I appreciate you. This has been an absolute joy. Um, I, I've loved getting to know you and your journey and get inside your head a little bit. You've challenged me. You've inspired me. You've grown me. So this has been absolutely amazing. Um, I'm just, I'm so happy that we have so many listeners out there that are going to be connecting with you and 
buying your book as well. So thank you so much for an amazing conversation. Right back at you. This was awesome. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Lasting Learning. Interested in learning more? Feel free to check out one of my books, like Making Assessment Work, for educators who hate data but love kids, or Bold Humility, or It's Like Riding a Bike, How to Make Learning Last a Lifetime. Just visit schmidto.net for more information, or feel free to check out Amazon.